Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, friends of the podcast, and welcome to all of our new listeners. This is Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm Mark Ellis, stand-up comic and Rotten Tomatoes correspondent. And I'm Jacqueline Coley. I'm an editor at Rotten Tomatoes, where I cover independent film and awards. Jacqueline, today's episode, it's kind of special. Why? It's the last day of 2020. We made it. We did it. You are way too happy about that fact, but keep going. (laughs) It is New Year's Eve. Hey, I have a show tonight you can get tickets for. And uh, yeah, everybody can watch virtual stand-up all across the world. But the bulk of this episode is not to promote my wares. It's for everyone to listen and enjoy an episode that was recorded back in August. This was one of our pilot episodes that we did before we shared it with the world. But I just found this to be such a movie that you can talk about endlessly and debate for all time. And we had a great guest Jacqueline and I had fun, so we wanted to share this episode with you. The movie in question, it's that mega hit from 2017, The Greatest Showman. And I want to give a quick shout out to our fan, Henry Graybeal, who requested this episode. Henry Graybeal. Jacqueline, that's a very regal name. Henry of the Graybeal Order. I mean, seriously, I feel like I should be kneeling so he can dub me with his sword. I love your name, Henry. I hope you're still listening. Thank you, Henry. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting us. So now we get to the point where we can run some of these pilot episodes back. The audio you're going to hear, it might be a little different than what you hear now. And that's just the way that things have gone since August. But that's good news. So once we have our esteemed expert review curator, Tim Ryan segment, then it's going to go into what we recorded back in August with our very special guest. Then Jacqueline and I will come back in 2020, the last day of 2020, to close things out. So The Greatest Showman, that's what we're here to talk about. It's rotten. It's got a score of 56%, which is very close to fresh. And it does have a fresh audience score of 86%. That is a huge dichotomy, Jacqueline. It's like you you either saw this movie eight times in the theater or you never saw it and you hated the idea of it. So we're going to get into all that. Do you have a take as to Rotten Tomatoes? Is it right or is it wrong when it comes to The Greatest Showman? Rotten Tomatoes is wrong because they like this movie too much. 56? <laughs> that's, that's the participation trophy for this movie's music more than anything that you saw on screen. It's awful. The 56% is for the soundtrack 
And that's really high. I would give it about, you know, a quarter of that if I was probably guessing for me personally. This movie is trash. Yeah. It's okay. trash. It feels like a lot of this tomato meter is just like, hey, well, Hugh Jackman, you are, in fact, the greatest showman. So here's your almost fresh score. What is this movie about? And again, it's very convenient that I get to throw it back to Jacqueline for the synopsis. I know. It's so great. I'm going to put all of the shade and venom I have for this movie in this synopsis. But listen, let's break it down. So P.T. Barnum was a horrible man who exploited everyone around him and scammed most of the people that he knew. But we get this colorful musical about his life and his dream to put on a circus. It, of course, stars Hugh Jackman, Michelle Williams, Zendaya, Zac Efron, and a colorful class to free which they never give any actual agency or storyline to. P.T. Barnum is a failing businessman who has married the girl of his dreams and he spends his entire life trying to prove to everyone that he is worthy of something. And in doing so, he makes a show. He puts on a circus, which is exploitative of bearded women and you know, generally people who society pushes aside. And we get the great rousing number, This Is Me, where they get to sing about how this is who they are and we love ourselves for who we are. And and then P.T. Barnum pushes them to the side for the very attractive white lady, Jenny Lynn, who's played by Rebecca, Rebecca Ferguson. And, you know, we get, this is some no, really good venom we get here, to Jack. watch as they sing and dance and Day and Zac Efron fall in love. And in the end, it allowed millions of people to forgive the fact that it's a horrible movie about a horrible man. But I do admit the fact that it is loved by the masses. Okay, well, that's a kind concession to you on the heels of that synopsis. Look, I think that you can debate who is the greatest showman on earth right now. Hugh Jackman certainly in the conversation. But is the movie The Greatest Showman even good? I think we know how Jacqueline feels about it. I was mixed coming into this movie, and I was a little confused, and I could have been swayed either way. But we want to know what the critics had to say about this film when it came out around Christmas time 2017. And for that, we're going to toss it to our own expert review curator at Rotten Tomatoes, Mr. Tim Ryan. Timmy, take us back in time. So before we get into The Greatest Showman, I wanted to talk a little bit about an essay that film critic Kristen Lopez wrote for our book, Rotten Movies We Love, which came out last year. Um, she wrote an entry on The Greatest Showman, and... What she had to say about it, I think, encapsulates a lot of the mixed feelings that sort of circulated around this film. I'm going to read a little bit from it right now. What makes The Greatest Showman work is how perfectly and unashamedly it pays homage to studio-era musicals. Films like The King and I, My Fair Lady, and West Side Story, in which lavish production values and memorable songs compete and eventually overcome sometimes repellent social commentary, the exploitation of minority characters, and historical fact. Like those classics, it triumphs over its inherent issues. Um, and later she wrote, it's wrong and dated, but also enchanting. In the case of The Greatest Showman, it was 56% on the tomato meter, so rotten, with 258 reviews. The audience score was 86%. So what were the critics saying? Tara Brady of the Irish Times in a rotten review wrote, the film's insistence that Barnum's freak show is born from warm, fuzzy humanity and very contemporary notions of inclusivity is not just historically inaccurate, it's at odds with The Greatest Showman's extremely pretty idea of freakery. In a fresh review, Helen O'Hara of Empire Magazine wrote, It races along at a breakneck pace and occasionally stumbles into mawkishness, but is carried along by Hugh Jackman's total commitment and some appallingly catching songs. So yeah, you have two extremes right there. 
<laughs> with some critics really enjoying it and others having trouble overcoming some of its flaws. So that's what the reviews look like. Thanks for having me. Back to you. All right. I did love hearing uh, the reference to Kristen Lopez's Greatest Showman essay in the book, uh, Rotten Movies We Love, because I think it's very relevant to hear. But Jacqueline, something else that's always relevant each and every time we do this show is our wonder producer, Lucy. Lucy, are you there? You want to chime in? Hello, I'm here. I'm chiming in. How are you guys doing? Doing okay, um, Lucy. <laughs> I'm doing great because I just get to sort of mediate this conversation. Now, I also saw the movie very, very recently. Lucy, did you see this movie when it came out or are you a newcomer like myself? I actually saw it last year. So I was late to the game and then I watched it again last night. I hated it upon first viewing. I actually turned it off. I was embarrassed. And then last night, I don't know if it's because I've been reading the research and whatever. I am a changed woman. I am on, I am on Team Greatest Showman now. So oh, this is this is going to be such a magical conversation because Jacqueline, I know you saw this in theaters. You probably saw this in a number of press screenings. I did not. I was on the road and I missed it. But our guest not only got a chance to see this at a press screening, I'm sure through any number of the outlets that he contributes to, but he also saw this movie like a hundred more times with his friends because he loved it. He is. The podcast extraordinaire, a YouTube host of hosts. You can check out his sports program, Game Time. And he is a champion of the movie Trivia Schmodown, John Roca. John, we're talking about your movie, bud. How you doing? Hello, everyone. This is me. This is me. This is who I'm meant to be. I am John Roca, and I'm excited to be on this podcast with two people I absolutely respect. Jacqueline Coley, I've read your work many, many times. It's an honor to be on the podcast with you. I'm buttering you up before we battle. And Mark Ellis, I uh, love you too. Lucy Bruckner just got to know her last night. Singer in an incredible band called Derbyfield. Please buy, go find that music. It's great stuff. But we are here to talk about other great music, and that is the music in The Greatest Showman and this movie. I'm excited to get into it uh, and uh, to talk about it with all of you all. Let's do this. Okay, so, John, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that you think Rotten Tomatoes is wrong with that 56% score on the tomato meter. It is. I thoroughly, thoroughly respect Rotten Tomatoes. I love that they exist. I always defend them in any of the shows that we to- that I've been on uh, when the people have come for it. And uh, But sometimes they get it wrong, and I think they got it wrong here. Uh, I think the audience gets it right, and that's right around where it should be. Uh, so I was really surprised to see how many cynical reviewers there are in the world, sadly, uh, and uh, I'll be trying to turn that around today in this uh, in this program. All right. Well, tell me about the first time you saw this movie, because I'm, I imagine you saw it. You got like a pre-screening with critics. What was it? Were you filled up with that? Oh, I love this movie right off the bat. Or was it more of an acquired taste for you? Let me blow off the dust off that. <sighs> Let me blow off the dust. It was about three years ago. A young, young Latino kid who had just kind of seen the bright lights of reviewing movies. He had gotten hired full time at Collider and he didn't quite have the contacts and publicists yet to get into screenings. So he was still a plus one for the head critic, Perry Nemiroff over there at Collider. I went as a plus one on a Sunday afternoon. That's right. Sunday. Oh no, Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Went to go see it. I think at Century City, sitting on an end chair next to, uh, next to Perry Nemiroff. And I had a religious experience watching this movie. I remember being absolutely in love with the music singing along bopping along i love the messages i love the story uh and i remember when the movie really hooked me was during rebecca ferguson's um lip-synced rendition of never enough uh when she hits that 
never enough. Right at the end there, I felt the chills on the back of my spine and then sweat start to go down the back of my, because she had taken me to church and back. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough for me. Never, never. So for me, I absolutely just fell in love with this movie, fell in love with the messages of this movie. Uh, Hugh Jackman was incredible. Zac Efron actually won me over, and I'm no big fan of Zac Efron. This was the beginning of me changing my mind on him. Zendaya, so great to see here. Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Rebecca Ferguson, as I mentioned earlier, and Michelle Williams, of course. Just who knew Michelle Williams could sing? I did not, and she was great. Uh, And there was so much of it that reminded me as a massive fan of MGM musicals and classical musicals. There were so many beats that were similar to me yet, somehow fresh and new in the, you see what I did there, fresh and in the way they uh, presented it in this movie. So this I just remember really walking out of like, there just insane. It sounds like you're describing your actual first time in a context <laughs> that does not mean movie. So uh, Jacqueline, Less I want to throw it over to you because look, it, here's the full disclosure. Like I told you, I just saw this movie last night. So my first time was watching it with the dog on my lap on my nice little TV. Jacqueline, you kind of had the same experience as Roka, just in the standpoint of you got to see this movie before general audiences. And so you knew what the world was in for, but you might have felt differently after your first time. I want to take it back, actually, to the first time I actually ever saw anything from The Greatest Showman. Mm. And there is an event called CinemaCon that happens in April out here uh, in Las Vegas. And it is like a convention for theater owners. And let me tell you, that first time I saw it, I was in. I remember tweeting about like, oh my God, Hugh Jackman in a musical. I had seen videos of him doing Oklahoma, which was sort of the thing that he did before he became Wolverine. And I was like, this looks amazing. I remember being like, I am so excited to see this movie. And I was. When I sat down to see it that year, I was like strapped in. I was so excited to see it. And within about four minutes... When I saw the first CGI dancing tiger, all of that hope just crumbled into a little ball and it was thrown out the window with just like there was a tear. There was a bit of a tear, if I'm going to be honest, when I realized how disappointing this moment was for me. But there was a whole six months that I thought The Greatest Showman was amazing. Hey, look, it's it, it, this is what this movie has done to people. It's a diversity of opinion, and that's what we love on this show. That's why I, it's great to have Roka joining us, because the audience score is 86% fresh. And uh, when you look at some of the reviews you can find on RottenTomatoes.com, I'll just read a couple quick ones. Uh, Christopher O says, It's an original take on the story of genius showman P.T. Barnum, led by the very mesmerizing Hugh Jackman. And that is kind of what gets you into theaters. And then you also have another review that says a fun, albeit shallow time for the family. Skip the story. Stay for the songs, which is pretty much the page that I'm going to be on. That's going to be my party line is that I did not care about the story. I did think it was pretty shallow, but some of the musical set pieces were worth the price of admission. I don't know that I would want to go back and back again, but according to Forbes, this is one of the leggiest films in movie history. Not leggy as in the way you describe a female uh, accomplice in a gumshoe movie from the 1940s, but leggy is in, no, this movie had legs because people kept going back and back to see the film. And I do understand that if you have a 
starved mentality for musical theater and you don't want to afford those big Broadway play. And this is shown in a Cineplex right down the street for 10, 12 bucks. I understand wanting to go back and see this movie again. Roca, yeah. you clearly love this movie. You're yes. gushing about it. Is it the music that got you back in the theater time and time again? Was it the actual story? Because I didn't see a lot there. Well, I mean, you, you're a big Schwarzenegger movie fan. There's not a lot there either, pal, and you like some of those movies. So the thing is, uh, you got to pick and choose what you feel connected to, what moves you. To me, the story, me as a son of as a son of immigrants coming to this country, I had to, when I was born, I had to like fight for the things I love. I want to achieve something and leave a legacy. And so there was about that, that story that Hugh Jackman, that they present, about P.T. Barnum really connected with me on a visceral level and what he was trying to accomplish, you know, uh, showing people that no matter what you look like, no matter what you, uh, where you're from or, or what status you have or economic situation, you have a chance to succeed uh, if the if things fall right and you work hard, it could present itself. So, so much of that worked for me and then you throw in the music. See, I think it unfairly gets vilified for a lightweight story. It is not a lightweight story in any way, shape or form. It may run through its emotional beats too quickly that's fair but the story itself you've seen that in a million other films that people love and revere and put in the classics section of the of the store so for me it was the music combined with the story that i felt an emotional connection to uh that i that moved me and i took multiple people to back to see it in fact it's one of the films my girlfriend and i saw for the first time uh, 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 on my birthday two years ago and and just absolutely loved it at a rooftop theater and uh, she's pretty cynical about movies and she loved it and so there are a number of people I brought I went to sing-alongs so I I just absolutely feel very moved by the film and the messages that the film is trying to say uh, in a very cynical world that we have right now yeah uh, Jacqueline you you mentioned something that kind of counters John's point and I love the way you phrase this the seduction of the musical hmm yeah, I mean, look, there, if you have watched enough musical theater or if you're a nerd like me and maybe have studied it, then you understand that there's certain elements of the musical. There's a music that's the showstopper moment. For those that don't know, This Is Me, which is the big anthem hit that they play pretty much any time they mention this movie, that's the showstopper hit. And basically, you can kind of manipulate an audience in a lot of ways. Like, there's always a song where the person talks about what they want. That's the I want song and in this one you know it's either we can rewrite the stars or you know the one that Hugh Jackman is singing to Michelle Williams at the very beginning like this idea that he's going to do yeah. something a fancy a million dreams yeah. a million dreams thank you see you actually paid attention to the titles <laughs> um this is this is the deal this is the deal though that seduction does hide its flaws and and there's a thing that I will say to this which is that I understand that I understand why the music because the reason why I know this is because the reason why people showed up to the theater, by the way, is because of how they promoted this. And every single promotion for this movie, within 15 seconds, they start playing that song. And they basically turn the trailer into a music video for this really, really catchy, poppy song. And the composers for this film, Pask and Paul, they know what they're doing. They've been manipulating audiences. And if you want to know the difference between the two, these are the same guys that wrote La La Land. And I will say what I say about La La Land but the music in it is incredible. It's very smartly written. This is literally like the B-side like stuff that they did not want to put out with the exception of This Is Me. How Sorry. I, I can't. I Okay. 
It's I, the truth. It's I think truth. La La Land is the B side of uh, that. <laughs> that music is horrific, for God's sakes. I, I don't find any of those songs. Um, they're memorable. not sing along about yeah, it. No, this they aren't. The and and they're not challenging s- in any way, shape or form or somehow inventive or new. Uh, to me, talk- it's, it's, it, this is this is the music that uh, that you remember. And you there's a reason they play it over and over again. Because you can just, sing along to it. It's because not, but they it's not, set but it up. But I feel like that's devaluing the, the, the people who go to this. We're not all mindless automatons who get manipulated to go see this. <laughs> go seeing it over and over and over again means that there's something more here that you're connecting to. Rather than the song, we all have YouTube, Jacqueline. We can listen to the song over and over again if we wanted to. It was going to have the full experience tied into the music, tied into the story and the connective scenes that those music music uh, cues pop into that move us, that keep us going and why we go back to see it over and over again. I hear you with manipulation. I totally respect that. But everybody manipulates, for God's sakes. I think that we're all get... manipulated a little bit yeah, in, in going into movies. any movie. I mean, if you look I'm at another movie that, that yeah. came out. At the same time as The Greatest Showman, the movie that I thought everybody would go rush back to theaters time and time again to see was Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. And th- there's, there, there's clearly manipulation in that movie, too, because you could put anything on a screen. And then as soon as I hear the John Williams score, I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to cry. Like, it, it's just how I feel about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And so it, 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 if this movie's well, I don't think Jack was wrong, by the way. It absolutely is manipulation. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Sure. And, and that's fair. But, but it's when does it sort of cross the line as in you're manipulating me into loving a movie that just doesn't have the substance because I agree with Jacqueline to this point, John, is that I think that music, we can debate all day which music is better. And I feel like music is the most subjective of the arts. But with a movie, I think there was so much more substance to La La Land than there was to this movie, which is surprising because this is based on a true story and it's just such a sugar-coated version of the guy. Wait a minute. What substance... Sorry, let, let's say okay. this. Let me just say this. The movie does have substance. I was going to get to yes. this. It does have things in it. It literally has everything. It has everything that an audience would need for them to fall in love with it. We've got the joyless critic who everybody loves to make fun of. We've got the girl meets boy, rags to riches, love triangles, the star-crossed lovers. We got a little CGI for you CGI heads. And they all push this into this narrative like a kitchen sink. So it's not that I don't think there's no there there. Mm -hmm. I just think it's like a very shallow house but they put enough stuff in it for people to like it and the thing i will argue too is the Mm. reason why people also kept coming back is because there is a joy to watching this type of movie and i would also say that given at the time that this came out this is another reason why i think it was very seductive this was 2017 Mm. a lot of us had just gone through a very tumultuous 2016 and to say the least least, which and that year you know want to know one of the biggest hits of that fall season you know what that was sing you know what this you know big hit was this year it's the greatest showman i feel like after some thanksgivings where some family members were coming nearly to blows about (laughs) the things of the 2016 election mom was like okay we're not doing a late night dinner session we're gonna go to the theater and we're gonna watch the sing on movie so none of y'all can yell and they just kept going back because it was something that was inoffensive to anyone and i don't think it's a coincidence that it happened in a very divisive time in our country see so again that's another reason 
why people like this movie. See, but I, I came- John, I, John, yeah. can I jump in here? And I want to ask you something about the particular yeah. movie itself, because yeah. there's so much to talk around the movie and oh, the sure, industry sure, sure. and how it got you in the theater. But let's take us back to you watching the movie one of your many times in the theater. <laughs> what is a particular scene that you would take out of there and show folks, not to manipulate them into a theater, but just yeah. to say, look at how great this is. Well, I think the opening A Million Dream song is fantastic. And I would say that it is on, I don't want to say I get in trouble with other critics, but I, I, I would say that it is in the same ballpark as the breakfast scenes, a montage in Citizen Kane, right? What you're getting in A Million Dreams throughout that whole sequence is these from two kids who are, he's saying, I'm going to show you everything. I want to build you a world. I want to show you what you can be, what there is out there. Not this stuffy world of the rich. There's something beautiful to go and experience in the world. And I, and I want to share it with you and make, take care of you. And I want to be there for you through it and throughout you see them and then they age and he comes to the door and he's like i'm gonna and the dad's all me he's like you know you know, she'll be back she'll be back you're nothing takes her they go and they build this beautiful life so you go this whole montage is from children to them having children and in that whole montage you get the relationship right all through song not dialogue not emotional mo- that's all throughout the the uh what is being sung uh there by hugh jackman and by michelle williams you know i want to be part of your world i want it. I don't care for rich or poor. I want to believe in the possibilities. Every night I lie in bed, the brightest colors fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me away. A million dreams, a million dreams. This is the 1900s. This is the early or 18, late 1800s. This is like right when the country is changing. This possibility of economic station not necessarily being the being a a. a, a stopper of you succeeding you know and so all of that is mixed in here if you're looking at it from a historical aspect as well so there's a lot throughout that opening montage from when the kid gets kicked out and goes to the beach and the girl comes over and talks to him to the point where he's holding her at the end and she's pregnant with their first child it is gorgeous and the dance on the rooftop stuff that is mgm musical illusion american in paris in the fountain with uh leslie caron and gene kelly when they are dancing through the fog and the blue fog that is absolutely reminiscent of that on purpose and that is to get you into that vibe that this is an old school homage to mgm musicals more than la la land which is white people trying to save jazz anyway yeah go ahead yes michael i mean uh mark yes you can't even get my white name right after i save jazz um I michael that, mark i mean what are we talking about yeah, go ahead. like that that is a great example of getting swept up in in this musical number right but it also it's like okay so in the course of one musical number we were kids and we were running off together and now by the end of the song we have two kids ourselves we missed our entire the good portion of our fun together and now we just got to be parents and raise them Mm -hmm. within within five i just felt bad for hugh jackman and michelle williams like go on a honeymoon enjoys enjoy part of your life before you just have to deal with raising kids and taking them to school and all that stuff but he's poor what honeymoon are they gonna go to they went to the honeymoon it's on the rooftop that was their honeymoon was the rooftop dance that was their honeymoon for god's sakes (sighs) the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana it doesn't get any better than this your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, He's not Jack, wrong what about is, that. Yeah, <laughs> what's your scene that, that you're like, okay, wait, this is a great example as to why this movie just ain't working for me. Um, I'm going to do both, which is that for the people that were seduced by this movie. And again, you see a running theme here? Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> I would say the scene that could maybe make me forget all of the rest would be the scene between Zendaya and Zac Efron. All I want is to fly with you. All I want is to fall with you. So just give me Two very gorgeous young people who know how to dance and sing, doing this beautiful trapeze number and like falling in love in the thing. It's really cute. I I'm not gonna lie. I could just watch that little vignette and be happy if it wasn't surrounded by the rest of the movie. And I'm gonna actually bring a scene that I don't think people would think that I would say, which is the this is me scene. Ooh. Let me explain this to you. So it's more about what happens right before and right after the big musical number. So right before the big musical number, Hugh Jackman, who is only rich and famous because of the freaks that he exploited, basically says to the exploited freaks, you can't sit with us. Like, you can't come into this posh yep. party where I have this new white lady that I want to show off, being Rebecca Ferguson, playing Jenny Lynn. Because, you know, he's already upgraded in every sense of the word. Freaks got me here, but forget them. And so they confront him and they say to him look don't ignore me this is me and we have a great big rousing moment Zendaya by that point is mad at Zac Efron and so she's given him all kinds of face and that's great people love that moment and they forget what happens immediately after that which is that he just dissed them and in the next immediate scene they're just like you were the one that saw something in us you were the one that defended us what he no, literally minute. shoved you aside. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait <laughs> like, a minute. Yeah. like the boy girl in Les Miserables. What's her name? It's not, <laughs> what's the girl's name? Like, <laughs> like uh, Cosette and, yeah, and Cosette. the dude yeah, are, are in love and she's off to the side being like, you never loved me. That is literally what he does. Well, and they love him. Like, that does not make any sense. That right there, you cannot book in that. But because they put that poppy hit in the middle of it, everyone forgets the fact that he literally was the boyfriend that said, I don't go with her. And then in the next scene, they're like, you were always my man. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't. John, uh, I'll give you the four to cross-examine. I, I think Jacqueline is chronologically incorrect here. <laughs> after it's, oh, because I just watched it this morning. After that uh, musical Not number Not immediately is, after. Right. It's it. way after, though. Like, the circus burns down. A lot happens before they forgive him. <laughs> He's a complete a-hole from that moment forward. 
up until Jenny Lind and him have that. By the way, the Jenny Lind thing is historically accurate. It did actually happen. So that is a, one actual historically correct thing in the movie. But like they, they, uh, they, they, it isn't, he is an a a hole for from that moment where he shuts the door on Kila Settle and they do that this is me. And then he's like, he's disregarding the circus. Zach Efron's trying to get him to pay attention. They're losing money, blah, blah, blah. All of that happens. So he's an a hole for a, a large part of the movie until he loses his family because Jenny kisses him on stage. The circus burns down. He is there at that moment. Then after he's paid that price, they come back and in their grace, in their grace, they forgive him because he did give him an opportunity to be able to showcase what they do. He gave them self-esteem. He gave them self-respect. He gave them a platform from which to feel equal. But he didn't. So, he tried he, to shove them in a closet. I'm not well, saying he to did, you and, that- but, but first he put them on the stage and gave them self-confidence and dragged them out of the shadows and said, you belong. You are equal. You so can So we're just going to pretend that the good times are all that happened. I'm sorry. No, but this is an abusive think, relationship. Yeah, fair, fair. But I think there is, there is forgiveness too i mean how many of us have seen movies where the lead is a complete a-hole uh, at at some moment and then turn and then has to learn the lesson to to understand and that's what that last song is about uh, from now on is about okay i thought going for the lights going for the money going you know making fu- uh, or, or putting it in the face of my wife's parents was the right thing to do but that's not the right thing to do that's petty what I need to do is look at the bigger picture and appreciate what I have, not just trying to become famous and rich and successful so that I can work out stuff from my childhood. I need to right. go and appreciate and what I, I have. Was so, and you have fine to have with that, that angle. Like I was fine with that angle. It just it, it felt like to me anyway, we did not ever see this man who pulled himself up from his bootstraps. And I yeah. like that. So I'm rooting for this guy. As soon as he gets slapped by the dad as, as a kid, I'm like, oh, I am rooting for this guy and I'm rooting oh, yeah. against the dad. But That's I never, <laughs> I never once saw this guy ever actually care about any of the quote freaks that he had booked for his show. It never seemed like he actually, it always felt like he was a snake oil salesman telling them, hey, come do my show because I need money to pay rent. Like, like, like that's what it always felt like to me anyway. I, I never, it, it never came across that he was compassionate towards these people. And so we go from a place where I think he's just using them for money. And then he becomes an even bigger a-hole by maybe starting to, to have a, a wandering eye and closing them out of the fancy party that they helped get him to mm-hmm. that place. So sure. I, by that point, he seemed like an unredeemable character to me, which is getting into my theme of this movie is that as much as Hugh Jackman is the greatest showman in our world, he's, he's amazing. He's super yeah. talented. That's what I thought I was going to get to see. And instead, I just found myself the whole time wavering between, wait, uh, yeah, this guy's a great performer, but do I even want to watch him? It was almost like it, it was like if you loved a band and you knew that they were doing like some really evil stuff backstage, but the music's great. So I was just rectifying that in my head I, the entire movie. Wait, I don't know how you do that because Van Halen, David, uh, you know, he's probably, David Lee Roth done some pretty unsavory things, my man. So it's like to be like to defend one Those thing. Those are all stories. <laughs> yeah, Wait stories. Oh, I bet they're stories. I'm just hey, saying. No. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, have a, I have a Van Halen thing that Mark will appreciate. <laughs> but this uh, thing you're talking, I totally get your point. But I actually think he is when he goes up to the bearded lady and they tell, you know, where is he? 
he goes up to her and he says she's beautiful. And he brings his kids to her and they hand and they said, like, you deserve to be out front. You deserve to do all this kind of thing, you know? And don't so I that. can make a bunch of money. Well, Sorry. he never says that. He never says that. He says, I want to give you the opportunity to perform. To see. And he says to them over and over again, they want you. They just don't know it yet. So he's giving them and they all come to him. Remember, they all stand in line to audition. They all go to the cattle call to try to get into this show. So it's not like he's going, come here, be in the show. I can make money. They volunteered. They stood in line and auditioned for him to be in this show. So he isn't dragging freaks off the street going, here you go. Now make me money. You know, he's not pimping them out. He's what he's saying is I have an opportunity for you to come on stage and, and, and perform and I'll give you a showcase and they come and audition for it. So I think that's a bit of a misrepresentation of what actually happens. Uh, Just because I- you choose to start dating them, dude, does not mean you accept the abuse. But I'm not going to go there again. Again, <laughs> Wait, this is not- bit- <laughs> listen, I just want to say this one thing. The thing about The Greatest Showman, which I think Mark should appreciate. Again, I've been trying to find moments that this why people could like this thing. <laughs> It had a Van Halen style uh, sort of, I would say, genesis in the sense that originally they had their David Lee Roth and Baz Luhrmann as the director for this. And then they sort of had to go. I wouldn't even say it was with their their Sammy Hagar. Um, I would say that this is more Sinise is the guy that they got to direct it. Um, his name... Jerry Sharon. Jerry yeah. Sharon. There you go. I said Sharon. Yeah. Sharone. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> that guy. I knew he was... In, he. I know he did the, the slow song from the 80s in the black and white video. More than words. There you go. I know that, dude. Um, oh, yeah, that's extreme. The director, yep. Michael Gracie, is Gary Sharon because he had to, like, fill in for Baz Luhrmann. And the movie wasn't even going to happen. But you want to know what saved it? They had a talent show with people like Cynthia Erivo mm-hmm. and uh, Keila uh, Settle, the girl that does the song for This Is Me, Hugh Jackman, Pascal mm-hmm. and Paul. They also, I think, had like uh, Jeremy Jordan, a bunch of Broadway people. And they performed the music for the movie yep. because the script was not good. Everyone was dropping out. And that was the only reason why they saved the movie. So again, just going back to my point, even Warner Brothers or whoever had this movie, is it Warner mm-hmm. Brothers? Um they needed the music to get them to understand that it was worth even having an effort. Well, John, l- l- let me let me pivot to that th- that over to you because when you look at how this movie actually did get made, I, I think you can look at it from the standpoint of oh well, we we were going to get a Baz Luhrmann movie, and 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 what could that have been? But do you look at this? production itself as a mirror of the story we're telling where it's just yeah. a ragtag group of folks and we're just trying to pull something together and it ended up working out and it's a great american success story yeah it's like those andy those oh, those old uh, mickey rooney movies those andy hardy movies right they we're gonna put on a show kids and that's what they did and yeah putting this all together but i mean jackman had worked with this director before on a lipton tea commercials uh he a had done tea stuff commercial? Oh, man, I mean, look, <laughs> we all go the fincher was doing music videos and we all come from somewhere i mean this you know and the great ones show me the car scrub who got he was not a scrub. To the he was My- a choreographer he was a writer and a composer he was not a scrub he wasn't uh, a scrub but he was yeah. definitely not a starting player like this dude was riding the bench and they put him in the game and it's well, luckily no but they they had a lot of they had a lot of help too though which i think was really smart because uh while he may not have had any other directorial you know any features under his belt a lot of directors come from commercials. They're hard things to make. He's yeah. visually I didn't capable. Say that. But um 
People like James Mangold, the Logan director, he was brought in to help oversee. You know, he also yeah. helped edit. It, it's one of those things where it's like, they, like Michael's got potential, right? But the producers or whoever decided to bring in all these other big kind of creators from the cinematographer who had done atonement, et cetera. Like that, that's, that's okay. It's okay to have Michael Gracie direct when you have all these power hitters behind him. Yeah. Seamus McGarvey was the cinematographer. He did atonement, nocturnal animals, Anna Karenina, the Avengers, the hours. Then you look at the writers, Jenny Hicks, who wrote for sex in the city, Dawson's Creek, the big C Bill Condon. He directed, he was one of the writers. He directed dream girls, gods and monsters, beauty and the beast. So there was a lot of talent behind this Michael Gracie. Bad movie. I know there was a ton of talent. (laughs) The one thing I will say is Lucy, you brought this up literally James Mangold. And this is a little inside baseball. So for folks that don't know, this is the director of Logan. He also did Mm. Ford versus Ferrari. He actually basically got called in to fix the mess that Michael, Michael Gracie made. Now that's the inside tip. Just like there's Mm. the inside rumor that, um, Gareth, uh, Davis, who directed Rogue One essentially had to get saved from his own movie as well. Now, granted, these are rumors. (laughs) None of it's necessarily been confirmed, but the inside industry talk has been whispering for a while that basically the barely passable movie that we got was strictly because James Mangle fixed it. That essentially Gracie was a bit over his head. Now that is alleged, but that's what's out on the street, which I think puts into my position that he was put into a director's chair before he was ready, if that's the case. And that happens sometimes, but I think you got to give credit to the studio for realizing that, thinking they might have something and bringing in someone like Mangold to make the fix. You know, the thing is not to take too much of a left turn, but like with Kathleen Kennedy, so much people give, so many people give her crap. When she makes the decision to release somebody and bring a new person in, in Rogue One, it worked out. In Solo, it didn't 100% work out, but she makes these decisions because she knows what's possible. And Rogue One, in my opinion, is one of the greatest new Star Wars films we've ever gotten. Absolutely, so, yeah. So sometimes you have to make that decision. I mean, to- a lot of rumors that Steven Spielberg directed Poltergeist after Tom Hooper <laughs> did a terrible job with that. So that's, 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 that's another good one. Yeah. And yeah. again, these are, Hollywood. Yeah. they could be rumors, but I will say this. This is one of those few movies where studio interference probably and more than likely saved the movie. So yes. we can give them like credit. That, uh, I, I just love that this guy directed Hugh Jackman in a Lipton tea commercial, and now Jacqueline's <laughs> spilling the tea about this movie. That seems to match so, up. Ooh, very oh, much. I love that. I lo- I've there's been, a can we give Mark some made. props? No, no, we need to stop. Mark made a great. He used oh, spilling the tea appropriately and put it into a pun. That is the marriage of us hanging out together. I'm just saying, I, like my slang with his dad jokes, I'm loving it. That is the flavor I've of this podcast. I've taken my first step into a larger world. But the, the biggest thing, I, I, I think that what we're all looking at, and Lucy, I'd love for you to weigh in on this subject too, is that w- with biopics, I think audiences are willing to accept some facsimile of the truth. And maybe it's the quality of the movie that is what determines how much we're willing to give, like how much leeway we're willing to give with what the actual story was versus what we're seeing on screen. Um, There's a lot of great articles that have talked about biopics that just are kind of lying to you, but they're based on a true story. One of my favorites is I love the movie Rudy. I think it's a great movie. Does it in any way 
mirror the actual experience <laughs> that Rudy Rudiger had, or does it give Rudy a right to just live off the fact that he was the worst Division One player in history for the rest of his life? I don't know, but I love watching the movie, so I'm willing to give the film itself a pass. But when we're talking about P.T. Barnum's story, there's such a yeah. mixed legacy, to say the least. Everything from allegations of animal abuse to racism. He was a staunch abolitionist. It's Is this a guy worth making a movie where we celebrate his strengths and we don't really highlight his flaws? I would like to address, I think, I think the songs are meant to bring the young people in. Yes. But I think the name recognition of Barnum is the Barnum is for the older people, the Barnum and Bailey. So I remember going to Barnum and Bailey many times growing up as a kid. That was a big event for us being taken to Barnum and Bailey Circus and watching all that stuff. So I think that's why you, you but you purposely don't you purposely don't make the movie about him. It's not it is kind of and it isn't, do you know? So he's almost like a blank slate or template that you are using or a springboard for all this other stuff that you're actually trying to tell. So I think that's why you go with someone like Barnum. It is because it's name recognition and so you have a little bit of a foundation and go from there. But I was really surprised at how many knowledgeable PT Barnum people there were in the world all of a sudden out of the blue. It was really surprising <laughs> how many people just said no known in-depth details about this man and were really there when he did all these things and researched P.T. Barnum and all these critic reviews. I was laughing my my butt off because I was like, wait, you got you got you went on Google, for God's sake. Uh, this this kind of stuff is he's a complex man, as most people who are famous or achieve things in life are complex people. We just saw Hamilton, right? Hamilton's family owned slaves. He didn't say crap about that. And so it's just like <laughs> people want to love all these oh, historical figures bringing up the Hamilton line. Look. <laughs> You said we have a biopic about P.T. Barnum, but yet I don't have a Mae Jensen. I don't have a Shirley Chisholm biopic. Come absolutely. on, son. Yeah. Come on, son. You're right. You're absolutely right. We didn't right. need this man's story. There's no Rosa Parks biopic. There's no bi- There's so many biopics that are missing from the black experience in this country. Take, absolutely. I will take, shoot, I'll take a biopic on Bill Hader before this dude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bill Hader love. We know you would what take if they a biopic on Bill Hader. What if they did a uh, a, a, a Greatest Showman on... Uh, what if they did Rosa Parks musical? What if they did a Rosa Parks biopic musical? Would you be okay <laughs> with that? Bad. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't even go down this road. <laughs> I'm going to save us from ourselves. Mark, Mark. That's yeah. amazing. Mark, Mark. I do have I to say, you. I do have to say the one SOS thing. The SOS is up. Is... is um, you know, this idea of um, the quote unquote circus freaks and everything. I was talking mm. to my husband about the movie and, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, you know, all this shitty stuff about Barnum's past or whatever. There yeah. is an aspect of the circus, though, that he mentioned. He grew up in West Central Africa and Cameroon. And pretty much if you are differently abled, if you have any sort of deformity or whatever, you are cast aside by society. You are literally mm. left in the streets. No one cares. We even do that to our own, you know, every, like this is around the world thing mm. that happens. And circuses were actually kind of sanctuaries for people. It was, and they, they mentioned this in the movie. It's, we are a family now. We, our families rejected us. Now we have a family. So I'm not defending Barnum, but I am saying there is an element there that they sort of play with. And I'm going to say, Hugh Jackman's Barnum because it's very different yeah, than right. real life Barnum, right? But there is a little bit of that that I was like, okay, this is a little bit more palatable. I can go, okay, this is this is a a new home for them, and so that's kind of a positive aspect in a not so pretty right. historical mm. past. <laughs> 
And well, what I'd say about this movie, too, is that it, it comes along at a time when I think us in America and around the world are taking a two eyes to look back at history. We're not just turning a blind eye right. and we're examining exactly what did happen in history. What are some things in history that maybe we weren't taught in school or things about historical figures that we've always just assumed were great because they have a statue made of them. And now we're kind of looking, no, well, who was the actual person? And so I think that we are examining this movie a lot closer under a microscope than we might have if this had come out in the 80s or 90s, when I'm sure it would have been a big hit because of the musical set pieces. And so something else that's, that, that we got from our expert researcher, Mark Hoffmeyer, is we're talking about word of mouth movies, right? This is a movie you go see and you tell your friends about and you say, oh, you got to go see this movie. It's just so bombastic and loud and it's, it's like you're going to the theater. Here's some other movies that did great as sleeper word of mouth hits. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Paddington, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Napoleon Dynamite, La La Land is in there, Rocky, Juno, Easy Rider, Game Night, just to name a few. Now, where this movie is the outlier is that all those other flicks I just listed are fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. This is still rotten. So despite the fact that it was a rotten film, according to the tomato meter, and that's all the critics around the world weighing in, it still had that word of mouth buzz. So I think that there is an underdog Rocky-like story that you could tell about this movie. It's difficult, it's difficult enough to make musicals. And then you make musicals that make money is even more difficult. And this thing came out against Star Wars and what we would soon find out was a juggernaut in Jumanji because of The Rock and Kevin Hart and everybody involved in that movie. And it found and it fought its way through to $435 million globally. That is not uh chump change. It's incredible what it was able to do. And I, you know, that's why, you know, and I respect Jacqueline's opinion, but when you say manipulate, people came back over and over again because they wanted to believe in this movie. They wanted to feel good again. They wanted to feel happy. They wanted to feel just the possibility of hope in this world that uh, has really darkened over the last few years. And I think that's one of the reasons I go back to it over and over again. Whenever I'm down, I'll put Greatest Showman on and just kind of get lost in it because it's like, I just want to disappear for a little bit and feel good again or get recharged or re-energized that there's possibilities. And I think that word of mouth spread with other people. Hey, man, are you, like, let me take you to this, you know, because not a lot of people want to run out and see musicals. Let me take you to see if you like it. And a lot of people turn around on it. All those uh, reviews on I've seen on, on other sites, they start out with, uh, you know, I did not want to. I thought I was going to hate this thing and I absolutely loved it. And so mm -hmm. and then. I just wonder to me, I wonder about the critic's situation and I wonder if maybe the character that is the critic, I wonder if some critics got upset no, by that or got offended that by is that. What, that is exactly what happened because I was just going to say, yeah. that so is. That didn't bother me at all because I'm like, that was there are critics pretty, like that offensive in the sense that you could tell they're setting itself up. Look, this was meant to be a crowd pleaser. Mm -hmm. This is meant to be an inoffensive Absolutely. thing that everybody likes. And when I say manipulative, I don't have to mean sinister. All mm -hmm. great writers manipulate their audiences. True. True. Like Mark, when he's on stage at a stand-up, he's making them go where they don't think they're going to go for them oh, to I'm hit totally the Totally manipulative exactly. the whole time. <laughs> I mean, look, again, it's not sinister, but you're manipulating right. them to get them to laugh. That's what you're doing. Yeah. The greatest show is manipulating you to feel good not just about the movie but the experience of watching the movie mm -hmm. because yeah. it encourages you to sing along it encourages you to feel like that's me literally the song says this is me like that is everything in in uh, sort of design in this movie has made you 
to make you want to feel a part of what they're putting on to mm. make you want to join the circus, if we can go ahead and say it. Now, the circus is trash. <laughs> well, look. With I, a bunch hey, of I meth did addicts. As but, close as you could possibly do. I'm a comedian, <laughs> and that's the closest thing you can do in 2020 to actually joining the circus. So tell yeah. your parents you want to be a comedian and see how that works out. <laughs> um, just to put a nice bow on this whole conversation that has just been so much fun to <laughs> have mediate and weigh in. Lucy, I, I want you to just chime in really quick because I didn't get your uh, kind of scene. Or Is there one musical set piece during this movie that really you're like, oh, you know what? This makes me feel great. Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, I think it's the one that Jacqueline brought up, but for me, it's a specific moment when the bearded lady, forgive me, I forget her character's name, the bearded lady is pissed that Hugh Jackman just rejected her, mm. and they're doing that whole montage through the streets, then they make it back into the, the theater, and she's singing there, and she's this incredible voice, and she's angry, and she's hurt, and she's upset, and all the all her her people fly up into the air, and then they like freeze, and then oh, yeah. it's just like, come on, come on, let's do this, like, land on the beat, land on the beat. And when they land on the beat, like, that kind of chill experience that you had, John, first mm. watching this film, I had it. Like, my whole body was just covered in chills. I was like, holy shit, this is so good. <laughs> this is brave. This is bruised. This is who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, And that's actually the moment where I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to rewatch this whole movie because at the end of the day, and, and this, this is why I think, you know, audiences kept going back and back. So once they saw it, it was like, oh, that made me feel things I haven't felt in a while. I need, I need more of this in my life. And they literally, I mean, people, I think it was like 46% of the sales of this soundtrack, for example, they were like hard copies. Like people are invested. It yep. became the it became the highest selling album of 2018. It beat A Star Is Born, I believe. Um, so it just goes to show, like, there are moments. There are so many moments like that in this movie that really make it quite loved by the audiences, and I'm on their side. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie I would recommend to my mom and anybody else who enjoys the theater, enjoys Broadway, and especially in the day and age where we currently live, if you don't have a lot of options to go out into the world to see live performances like this, I think The Greatest Showman pulls a lot of that off. I just could not get past the fact that I came into this movie called The Greatest Showman, understanding that Hugh Jackman is The Greatest Showman, and then I, the movie made me hate Hugh Jackman most of the time. So that is something that I will work on in my personal life. But in the meantime, we do want to wrap this show up by thanking our esteemed guest, John Roca. Dynamite conversation. It was so much fun to have you on the show, my friend. What are you working on right now? Where can all the kids go find you? It was my honor to be uh, talking with both of you. Honestly, it's my honor. Uh, and I had a lot of fun. Uh, you can find me uh, at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram uh, and by YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says you can see all the film stuff we do there, sports stuff, professional wrestling and politics stuff we do on that channel. Try a little bit of 
a variety of everything. And yes, we do debate films. Uh, a lot of fun on that as well. Uh, so, and of course, The Cinephiles, which is my podcast. I think it seems appropriate here that I do with my director friend here. We've done it for four and a half years now. We uh, break down a classic movie every week or a good movie every week. Uh, we spend two to three hours breaking it down. And we've had great guests like Scott Mance on numerous times. Kay Cannon was a recent guest. And so we just love to uh, get involved into the world of film. So please go and download that as well. The Cinephiles, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. You want to talk about the checkered pass to P.T. Barnum? Don't get Roke and I started on our favorite football team. Um, John, <laughs> do you have any uh, movie recommendations out there for the kids? Like, it may be something that's sort of in the vein of The Greatest Showman that might be a little more palatable to everyone. Well, there's, you know, people talk about the weight of musicals, right? Oh, they can be a little, but I mean, I mean, West Side Story brings some pretty hardcore stuff to the front about racism. And you can make fun of gang members dancing, but it's about racism at that time in the 60s. You know, it's a really important film, I think, for people to watch. We are getting Steven Spielberg doing a remake on it. I don't know how you improve on a film that won 11 Oscars, but I guess he's going to try. And that's the story that really comes, I come back to over and over again. If you haven't seen American in Paris, that's another one. You want to see what the power of a musical could do. That's a best picture winner with a six 16 minute dance sequence near the end of it and you don't lose a moment a second of attention when you're watching that movie and i think a quiet one that no one really talks about that much is it's called it's always fair weather a gene kelly musical about these men coming back from world war ii and the ptsd they experience over 10 years that threatens to break up their friendship and then they come back together and how they find their way back to each other after they've been in the real world for 10 years it's kind of a dour musical but i think it shows you the power of what that of what a musical genre can do and it's not as lightweight as you think it is okay well jacqueline i hope you agree with one of those takes (laughs) (laughs) no he's got he's got some good stuff look um i will go ahead and say that um well first of all mark it was always a pleasure it's always fun everybody can find me at that jacqueline on any form of social media but for me if i was going to give a recommendation of a movie i would actually recommend if we want to go with something that really is mgm quality go with the unsinkable molly brown a lot of people talk about debbie reynolds and obviously say that you know her performance in singing in the rain is amazing but if you want to see her lead the show and be absolutely amazing check out the unsinkable molly brown she sings she dances she's absolutely incredible and she gave birth to carrie fisher so she's an incredible (laughs) woman all the way around rest in peace miss debbie reynolds and then uh, another one more modern that i think you should check out if you want to talk about you know really fighting for the freaks watch hedwig and the angry inch because that is a place where the freaks not only rule but they get to write their own story and the music is even better so that those are my two recommendations. Um, Mark, thank you again, sir. It's been fun. All right, y'all. Hey, it's present day, last day of 2020. Mark and Jacqueline again. Hope you dug that episode. And once again, super thanks to our buddy John Roca for contributing his passion and his love, if not an opinion Jacqueline agreed with about the greatest showman. So this is it for 2020. We have loved hearing from y'all. It's been one of the most rewarding parts about us doing this show is all the fan support and all the emails we've gotten. You can email us anytime. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. And let us know what you think. Let us know what movies you want us to cover, what special guests you'd like us to have. You name it. We are here for your pleasure. Jacqueline, do we know the movie that we're going to kick off 2021 with you. What are we ringing in the new year with? Yes, we're putting the romance and the music aside, and we're going to go do some crime with Mr. Nicolas Cage and National Treasure. Because, sorry kids, to break it to you, but he's going to steal the Declaration of Independence. And I don't know that anyone could have delivered that line better 
that line you just said than the one, the only Nick Cage. That is going to be a really fun show. What do we have to say about National Treasure? You can tune in next week. In the meantime, for Jacqueline Coley, I am Mark Ellis. Happy New Year, everyone. We made it. We did it. This year took eight years to complete, but we're here now, and we'll see you in 2021.